morning in 1 Thessalonians this morning. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be reading the first 16 verses, but we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16 in particular today. In this section we're about to read, Paul is defending his ministry amongst them. And in today's passage, he offers up three proofs why his ministry wasn't in vain. Three evidences, really, of their salvation and of God's work in their lives. And so, think about that as we read through this section. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with, with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretense for greed. God is a witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragements of your word, and we thank you for the record of the things that have happened and the things that have been done and the things that are being taught. And pray, Lord, that as we consider this passage today, that you would bless our hearts to be filled with joy and comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul was thankful and grateful for these evidences of their lives, these evidences of their salvation, 
the, the clear appearance of God amongst them. And he starts off in verse 13 with being thankful that they have received the things that they were being taught as they are, as the word of God, not as the word of men. Now, for any pastor or evangelist or teacher, this is really a great joy. Jesus also rejoiced in this. He said, I'd given them your words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you and that you have sent me. We want people to to listen to and receive the things of God that we are teaching. It's especially true here of the gospel, of the gospel of salvation. We really want that and the rest of God's word to, to be received, to be understood, to be accepted for what it is. Many men set themselves up as judge of God's word and decide whether it's good or not for them. But these people, because they knew God, they received God's word as right. Their ready reception of the truth is why Paul said in verse 1, you know yourselves, brother, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now he gets into the details of why it was not in vain. Remember we learned in 1 John that the world listens to its own teachers, but it doesn't want to listen to God. He said they are from the world and they speak from the world, speaking of the false prophets and false pastors, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Paul is saying that the Thessalonians listened to the message and that that listening really proved that they were from God, that they were God's children. The fact that they listened to it not as sweet ideas coming from men, but as the very thoughts and intentions of God. And so in this passage today, there are these three proofs, and that is the first one, that they received it, not as man's inventions, but as God's revelation. And that's a great thing in Paul's sight. They received his teaching, not as man's word, but as God's word, and that was evidence of the success of his mission, the success of his ministry, and really evidence of their salvation. The world will reject what God says and listen to what the world says. But the believer will listen to what God says and say that is really the word of God, and their lives will be changed. This is really a critical point for this whole section of the letter. Paul wasn't just some philosopher peddling ear-tickling ideas that would appeal to men. He says... But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. And it's not really just Christ, but it's all of God's word, all of scripture that has that great value to us. Paul, when he was arrested and on his way to Rome, or going to be arrested and sent to Rome, said that I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Acts chapter 20, when he was in Ephesus on his way to be arrested. If they die unrepentant in their sins, it wasn't going to be Paul's fault. Because Paul had warned them 
by preaching the full counsel of God, that they might hear and obey. Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I say to you, and until heaven and earth pass away, in other words, until the end of the, this world and the beginning of the kingdom of the eternal kingdom of God, not one iota nor, nor a dot, not the least stroke of the pen or the smallest letter, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And he said, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void or meaningless. That was Matthew 5, 17 and 18 and Luke 16, 17. The gospel and indeed all of the word of the God, word of God is something that we should receive and treasure as from God and for us and for all time until this world is no more. We should treasure it very greatly. As the psalmist says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11. We need to mix it with faith in our life, in our hearts. The good news came to us just as it did them, but the message they received did not benefit them because they were not united by faith to those who listened. Hebrews 4.2. We must mix the message with faith. If we do not have that faith, then the message of God's word seems to be foolishness to us. It's a stumbling block to us. And also we should not just be hearers only, but doers of the word. James says, if you be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James 1.22. So we need to receive the scriptures with great enthusiasm, with great assurance that it is what God has said for us. We do not need to examine it and say, I wonder if this is going to work for me and whether I should do this or whether I should do what I think is right, whether I should listen to this person or listen to God. No, the believer knows there's only one worth listening to, and that's God. And so they had received what Paul was teaching them, which we have written now in in the New Testament in his epistles. They had received it as the word of God, which is what Paul says it was. It wasn't his ideas. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 and following. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So that's the difference between what is scripture and not scripture in teaching. God's word is true. The philosophers and their false religions are little more than cleverly devised myths. And this is also the difference between a real pastor and a heretical teacher or false prophet, what they teach. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, talking about his transfiguration. Now this is where he goes from that. We have not followed cleverly devised myths. We have the, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes about by someone's own interpretation. A prophecy of Scripture here is a revelation from God written down in the Bible. We would call the whole Bible, essentially, that kind of prophecy of Scripture. It didn't come by their own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that was 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Scripture is a direct revelation of God. It's a revelation of the truth he wants us to know. It's a revelation of the truth he wants us to live by. And we need to remember that. That's how these people were receiving the teaching of God from Paul. Now I'll hold off on 2 Timothy 3.16 for a little bit because I want to give you its context. Paul stressed the authority of God's word and the teaching God had entrusted to him throughout all of his writings. He insists we imparted words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, 1 Corinthians 2.13. All of the teachings Paul has written down in his epistles, and really all of Scripture, are God's teachings brought to us through the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul can insist if someone thinks himself a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are command of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14.37 And why he insists that they were taught. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read before all the brothers. He says at the end of this letter in chapter 5, verse 27. How can he put them under oath? Because it's God's word and they must read it to the people. They cannot just tickle ears. If anyone does not obey what we were saying in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Second Thessalonians 3.14 It's the word of God. It's God's revelation to man, and man does not have the right to say, we don't want to hear what you have to say anymore. But that's what they did. This work was at this word was at work in these believers, he points out. You could see that it was working in them. God has promised that his word will always work in work out his purpose, work out his will. Uh, Isaiah says that the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth, making for both sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, that will not return to me empty, but accomplish the purpose for which I have sent it, it and shall succeed in the things for which I have purposed. And that was Isaiah 55. Paul can therefore say that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1.16 This power of the word of God really is important in Paul's preaching. And we can see this when he is in Philippi. It says that a woman named Lydia was there and that God opened her heart so that she could receive what Paul was teaching in Acts 16, 14, and 15. Receiving God's word as being from God, as having the authority of God, as speaking for God, really requires that God has opened our heart. That God has fulfilled the promise he made that he would give us a new heart. That's what it means when he said he opened Lydia's heart. 
and put a new spirit in you. That way we can understand those things that are spiritually discerned and accept them. And I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I put my spirit in you so that you may be careful to walk according to my statutes and obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. This was necessary in evidence to Paul in Paul's mind that when he saw people receiving the word of God as it was and that it was making a change in their life because they were saying, what I am hearing from, the, from Paul, the teachings of the scriptures, they are really the word of God and their life is transformed by it, then he has great confidence. And that is then the second evidence that their lives were changed by hearing the word of God. They were transformed. As Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. In the first part of this chapter, verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1, Paul talks about how the gospel had come with them in power. The transformation of their lives was something he had seen in them. And he knew then that his ministry was not in vain. And he was thankful, really grateful, that they had received the word of God as it is, as the word of God, and that there were fruit in them. He goes on in verse 14 to give another evidence And that evidence was that they naturally suffered for receiving God's word. When you follow God, when you follow Christ, when you're changed and transformed into his image, the world no longer loves you. And instead it hates you and it persecutes you. Now we've all remember the passage I quote often, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I want to take a moment and look at the context of that. Starting back in verse 10 of 2 Timothy 3. I want to read a slightly longer section, even though we'll run long today. Because thinking about it in context is important for our message today. This is a third evidence of their salvation, of his ministry being successful. And that is that they they received the word, it transformed their life, and that brought about persecution. So let's read, starting at verse 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. You, however, have followed my teaching. Telling Timothy they had received, he had received his teaching from God and had put it into action, as Paul has been talking about in our passage. You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Note that connection between persecution and scripture and in faith. They go together. Verse 14, continuing. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, 
The whom there is plural, it's not meaning just Paul, but from all those who have taught him the truth of Scripture, including the Holy Spirit, most importantly. And now from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So note, the promise of persecution to anyone who wants to lead a godly life is linked with his claim of inspiration for the Scriptures, for all of it. In other words, the Scripture being breathed out is useful. To continue living according to it is important, even though it's going to guarantee persecution. If you want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, Scripture is the place to find out what that is, and that will lead you inevitably to persecution. This would happen primarily because the unbelieving Jews refused to listen to or submit to God's word. They were often quite bold in their scorn of God's word, such as when Jeremiah called them to repentance. In the book of Jeremiah in chapter 44, he's lecturing them on their idols and their idolatry and their worship of false gods and their seeking of help from Egypt and other places. And he says many things to them, and their reply is in verse 16 of chapter 44, as, as for the word which you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything we have vowed. We will make offerings to the queen of heaven. We will pour out drink offerings to her, as we did, both we and our fathers and our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. So here he is prophesying to them, disaster will come upon you for your idolatry. And their reply is, we're going to trust in our idols. We won't listen to you. This went on throughout all of the Old Testament, this attitude. Unbelievers don't care what God says. They don't care how much God hates their sin. They don't care how often God calls them to repentance. Instead, they become enraged and persecute God's people who live according to the word because we live according to the word. All who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus warned them over and over again about persecutions to come because of his name. In his high priestly prayer, John 17, starting at verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so that promise of persecution and hatred is wrapped around by his giving the word and the power of the word to change their lives. So he mentions here that they suffered at the hands of their own countrymen what what he suffered and the churches in Judea suffered from the Jews. Well, what did they suffer? If you look through the book of Acts, really the first half of it documents that pretty well. After preaching the gospel and performing miraculous signs, particularly the healing of a lame man, 
They were arrested in chapter 4, the apostles, thrown into prison. They were threatened and commanded not to teach in Jesus' name. But of course, they politely insisted they had to obey God rather than men and would teach about salvation through Jesus. In chapter 5, they're arrested again and imprisoned. The Holy Spirit releases them. But they were commanded not to teach. Oh, the Holy Spirit commanded them to go and teach in the temple. They're rearrested and forbidden to teach about Jesus. And they were beaten. So they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In Acts 6 and 7, we have the story of Stephen, arrested and martyred by stoning for his powerful miracles and for his powerful preaching. And Saul was there and gave approval of his murder. In Acts 8, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. So he's hunting down the Christians in Jerusalem, going into their homes and dragging them out to be arrested and imprisoned. In Acts chapter 9, he's still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest to get letters to the synagogues of Damascus that he found that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Of course, we know he was saved on the road. Paul begins to preach the gospel there in Damascus. And the Jews were confused and confuted. It said he increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, because he's speaking for God. And their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But of course, he sneaks out, lowered from a basket, in the, from a window in the wall. And he goes to Jerusalem, and he disputes against the Hellenists, still in Acts chapter 9. But they were seeking to kill him. So the brothers took him to Caesarea and sent him to Tarshish, his home city. In Acts chapter 12, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that that pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Remember, Peter was miraculously released from prison and when he had to go into hiding, though. That was what they were suffering at the hands of the Jews. The Jews wanted by any means possible to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ from going out. They wanted to stop people from hearing about God. And that's what Paul says in our passage today. And so the Gentiles, they suffered the same things, same sort of things. We don't have a direct account of what happened in Thessalonica, but think of what happened in the other churches. As Paul went about his missionary journey, journeys, the second half of the book of Acts documents the opposition. The Jews were jealous and angry. The Gentiles were also jealous and angry. Their religions were being spoken against, and so the Jews fed the hatred of the Gentiles. In Antioch and Pisidia, the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading of men of the city, and stirred up persecution, Acts 13. Unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers in Acts 14. 
That was in uh, Iconium. In Ephesus, Demetrius the silversmith started a riot saying that their gods were being spoken against and it would be a disgrace to the hard work of making idols and getting rich off of them if it was allowed to continue. And there was a riot. And in Philippi, talked about it last week, after saving, healing the demon-possessed fortune teller and driving the evil spirit out from her, her owners were furious that they wouldn't make any money. And they, they got a crowd together and joined in attacking Paul and his companions. And so the magistrates tore off their garments and gave orders to beat them with rods. And after they had inflicted many blows, they were thrown into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So they were locked in the lock, put their feet in the stocks. Of course, we know what happens. The jailer is powerfully converted, and Paul moves on to Thessalonica. Now, these lists could be longer, but they give us an idea. This is what he's talking about when he says, you've suffered the same things at the hands of your own countrymen, that the Jews, the Jewish believers suffered in Judea at the hands of the Jews. By, be, by enduring the same things and continuing in the faith, they were essentially becoming imitators of God's children in Judea. But both the unbelieving Jews and the Gentiles were united against a common enemy. You know, that before the two had nothing to do with each other. Jews did not talk to Gentiles. But with God's word coming out to them powerfully, both to the Jew and the Gentiles, the unbelieving Jews joined with unbelieving Gentiles and recognized their common enemy, God, and his children. And so that's where we go in verse 15 and 16. They want to stop the word of God from going out. And they are displeasing God by opposing him and opposing his kingdom. Jesus speaks of this in a parable. The parable is found in Luke chapter 11, 46 through 52, and I want to read it to you, even though it's long, because it helps us to put in the proper perspective. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens too heavy to bear. (coughs) I'm sorry, the, the parable will be later. First, the woes. Woe to you lawyers For you load people down with burdens too heavy to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So your witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now this is the key part. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. Speaking of the kingdom of God. (coughs) In Matthew 23, he says much the same thing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Truly terrible and sinful attitude, but they're trying to stop people from entering the kingdom of God. How do they do this? I remember in Matthew 15, verses 3 through 9, Jesus said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would gain from me is given to God. In other words, it's devoted to God and it belongs to him. Anything that I would give you as honor to you. He said, they need not honor your father. And so for the sake of your traditions, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their heart, with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They've taken away the key to knowledge. They're teaching their own doctrines as a replacement for God's word. And that way, they shut up the kingdom of heaven. They persuade men that they can be be saved apart from Christ. In the case of the Jews, it was through partial obedience to the law that they could compensate for their sin and be acceptable or good enough to God. And so they were nullifying the need for full obedience. And that full obedience is what Jesus gives us. He obeyed perfectly for us. And they nullify the need for Jesus to die for their sins, saying, no, our sins are paid for by our obediences. And so in the end, they've nullified the need to come to the Father through Christ. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They were shutting up the kingdom of heaven by suggesting a way to heaven apart from Christ, apart from his perfect obedience on our behalf and apart from him dying for our sins. Everyone who strokes men's egos and persuades them that they can get to heaven by their own works, no matter how imperfect they may be, is really shutting up the kingdom of heaven for them. They can't get there that way. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, Romans 3, 23 to 25. You can't have Jesus as a propitiation for your sins. You can't have his blood wash you whiter than snow if you think you can get there by yourself and don't need it. And thus they have shut up the kingdom of heaven by posing alternatives, which are nothing but lies. And here's the parable I mentioned earlier. Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and was going to another country. So he's talking here about the Jews. That's the, the Jewish nation, his, his vineyard. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Those are the prophets. Finally, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. (coughs) Wherefore, what will the owner of the vineyard come? What will he do to these tenants? I think we all know. But that was his parable of what was going to happen. They don't want God. They don't want Christ to rule over them. They don't want his salvation. They want to kill him and take the kingdom for themselves. So it will be their kingdom. In that way, they're trying to hinder the kingdom. They're hindering salvation. It's clear from Jesus' words and from Paul's words here that Satan and his followers do not want men to be saved but they want them to join their rebellion against God. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. It's also clear from Jesus' words that they have no place in the true kingdom. They don't want anyone else to enter either. It's as if they were saying, I can't have it, and I don't want anyone else to have it either. They oppose all mankind by trying to prevent them from knowing the Lord and from knowing his will, from hearing the word hearing the gospel, and being saved. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Thankfully, the power does not rest with men, but with God. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6, 37. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and the kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord? And against his anointing, saying, and this is important, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is how they review the moral law. The moral law is bounds and cords, and they want freedom. Freedom from the moral law, freedom from God. Why do they plot in vain? Why do they want to cast apart the bonds of God and the cords that he has bound us with? But he who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion on my holy hill. Psalm 2, the first six verses. They can't prevent the salvation of a single person who is God's elect. If God has given us to Jesus... To him we will go, to heaven we will be with him. But they try. They rage against him. They struggle against him. They fight to stop the gospel spread. They fight fight to make the cost of being a disciple so high that people don't want it. But that doesn't work for their advantage. Indeed, what ends up happening is fewer godless end up in the church and the And the church becomes more pure because the godless persecute the church, the true church. They are filling up the measure of their sins, and God's wrath is coming upon them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. That passage we read. Fill up the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being sentenced to hell? Why does he say that? Because they've shed the blood of the prophets. 
I therefore send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you... So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's Matthew 23. As Jesus traveled about, he no doubt taught the same thing many times. And we have two different references to that. These people were no different than their fathers, the Jews. They continued their sin of persecuting and murdering God's prophets, and now the apostles, and trying to hinder the kingdom of God. And the unbelieving Gentiles were following in their footsteps, doing exactly the same thing. Why? Because they both serve the devil. There are only two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of rebellion against him under Satan. The unbelieving Jews and the Gentiles were both in Satan's kingdom, persecuting and murdering the prophets and apostles, the ministers of God, trying to hinder God's kingdom. And now God says their punishment will be upon them. Paul says in Romans 11, I ask then, did God reject his people? For no, by no means. For I am an Israelite, the descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars, and I am the only one left, and they seek my life. Remember the horrible state he was in at that time. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, God's kingdom. But the elect elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the elect of the Jews were saved in spite of their efforts to destroy God's kingdom and prevent Christ from reigning, to stop the gospel. But that is Satan's great mission to thwart the gospel and try to stop the kingdom of God. But he cannot succeed, not with all the unbelieving Jews and all the unbelieving Gentiles combined. Praise the Lord. And so Paul here in this passage, he he's thankful for their receiving God's word as the word of God, not the word of men. And he says this showed their, really their new hearts. And this vindicated Paul's ministry. It was worth coming and worth doing it because of the way he received God's word. The second evidence he offered here was having received God's word, it worked effectually in them. They had new hearts and new lives. And this also vindicated his ministry and showed their salvation. And finally, since they received the word of God, The word of God brought to them persecution, which they endured, because that persecution must inevitably come. And that also showed their new hearts and the value of his ministry among them. And we should think about that. You know, in our own lives, the word should really be central 
in who we are and what we are and what we do. And ask ourselves, is that really how it is with me? When I read it in God's word, do I make excuses? Oh, that's cultural. Oh, that's old-fashioned. That's not important. Or do I receive it as God speaking to me in the here and now? Does it change me? When I find something that I don't live by, that I don't agree with, am I transformed by it, by seeing it in God's word, going, ah, I'm wrong, and now I know the truth? Or do we struggle against it, put it aside, bury it? And finally, has our faith brought about persecution? If we lead a godly life, the world will see it. The world will know it. The world will hate it and will rage against it. We don't want that. We want to live at peace with all men as much as it lies within us. But inevitably, our faith will lead people to hate us. Or do we hide our faith to the point where no one notices? Now, these are things we should think about as we consider this passage and consider the ministry. What do we live for? One of the themes of this book is living for eternity. And we'll be seeing that as we get into the next part of the book. We still have to finish Paul's defense of his ministry. But after that, we'll be looking at the glory of eternity. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder of the power of your word, that your word carries with it your power, and the Holy Spirit works that in our hearts to see our lives transformed. And we know, Lord, that then, having our lives transformed, we are no longer of the world. And so, as it hated your Son, it hates us as well. And we ask, Lord, for your grace that we might endure the trials that come with faith, the trials not just of outward persecution, but the struggles of our heart to live rightly before you. We pray, Lord, that we would always honor and respect your word as your your will and live according to it and face both our internal struggles and external persecutions with grace, living for you, living for your kingdom, living for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.